This episode of Shameless is brought to you by Keep It Cleaner. Learn how to love running with Steph Claire Smith and Laura Henshaw. I believe that there are a huge number of people who work just as hard as I did to start something which had just as much potential, but the market wasn't with them. You know, the idea is really solid and a big competitor comes to get them or the technology around that they, you know, that they deal with changes or something goes really wrong. And it is an incredible risk. It's an incredible gamble starting a business. And so while I believe that I've worked very hard and I believe that I deserve to be here, I also cannot avoid being conscious of that there were a huge amount of things that have gone my way from the education that I received to the parents that I had to the fact that we just had no competitors coming after us. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. We're joined today by entrepreneur Cyan Taid, who has gone from working out of her parents' basement in 2006 to building a tech empire with her online design and photography hub, Invado. Cyan works with her business partner and husband, Collis, and is Australia's richest woman under 40. But making money isn't her end game at all. Over the last couple of years, Cyan has directed her energy and efforts into Hey Tiger, an ethical chocolate brand that functions as a social enterprise where each bar sold helps community development projects in cocoa farming communities in West Africa. Cyan is incredibly successful, yes, but she's also kind and oozes compassion with everything she does. Here, we discuss how she went from being in her mid-twenties with nothing at all to her name to being in her late thirties with hundreds of employees and a couple of pretty powerful empires. Here's Cyan. Cyan, welcome to Shameless in Conversations. Thank you for having me. We are so stoked to be here. We are surrounded by Hey Tiger chocolate as well, <laughs> which makes it a little bit better. Um, Cyan, we start every episode in the same way, which is to ask you if there's anything you're reading, watching or listening to that you would recommend to anybody else listening. Um, I recently read Essentialism hmm. and, um, and I'm finding that really interesting. It is about effectively being essential in your work. Um, figuring out what it is that you can do better than anyone else and just doing that thing and getting rid of the rest of the stuff that you do. It's very interesting and very useful. It's almost like a a step-by-step. And for me, a person who tries to do a lot of different things, sometimes to my own detriment, I'm finding it particularly helpful. So it's kind of like, I think there's a saying, and I'm going to butcher it, I already know it, kind of like going two inches wide and a kilometre deep, that you pursue one thing and kind of have a little bit of tunnel vision, but in a positive way. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That if you, that they've got like a diagram at the beginning, which if you, and I'm probably not going to explain this very well at all, <laughs> but if you're imagining a circle with all these little arrows going out, you know, in all different directions representing your effort, you probably, you know, none of those little arrows are going to go very far. Whereas if you've got, you know, a couple of, just a couple of arrows and you're pushing all your energy into those, you're going to go very far and hopefully have a much more relaxed life in the process. Do you do that a lot? Do you tend to do a lot of reading and listening on stuff that's going to better you in a work sense or do you feel like you're almost past that? I find that what I'm naturally drawn to is stuff that is going to better me in a holistic life sense. 
So if it's specifically around how to work, I find it really hard to get into that. If it's about how to be more effective and how to think, I find that incredibly helpful. So, you know, I read and have been for a little while and I'll be really sad when it's finished, but, you know, one sort of um, one Tools of Titans, um, Tim Ferriss chapter every day and I read it in the morning and I kind of, you know, it's like a page and a half of advice from a really talented person every day. It's almost like one self-help book every day from somebody who's really out there living a very interesting life and I try and internalise it, get sort of, you know, everything I can out of it, reflect on it for the day and then move on. If it was a how to run more effective meetings. Um, <laughs> Thrilling. I just, yeah, I, it just, just doesn't resonate with me. Lots of entrepreneurs obviously have super busy lifestyles mm-hmm. and are quite stressed. What do you do in those moments of stress or overwhelm? What do you gravitate towards in a content sense? I really enjoy trash. <laughs> so what, you're in the right place. You are yeah, definitely yeah, in the right I place. I know, I know, I know. Um, I think we're very similar in that way. So I find that I literally need to pull, pull back and not look at anything even slightly useful. So Survivor is a massive favourite of mine. It's because I've got 10 All Access and we're watching all the old seasons oh. at the moment. Yeah, highly, highly recommended. If you're obsessed with Survivor, you can watch every single American season from the beginning. It always makes me think about the kind of character or role that I would play on Survivor, like whether you try to fly under the radar. Does it make you think about what you would do if you're on the show? Do you ever imagine yourself on the show? I think my husband and I have conversations. We're watching it every night at the moment, an episode every night, and I think every night we have a conversation about how we would be on <laughs> You know Survivor. they would put you on the Australian version. All of the promo <laughs> around Janine Alice right. is like, I have this massive company and as an entrepreneur, Let's I've learned XYZ. Let's Let's get you on the next one. I bet you someone from Channel Channel 10 people listen to us, so we <laughs> could set this up. up. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> would you do it? My kids are too little at the moment for me to feel like I could leave. Yeah. 10 years? I would, yeah. There we 10 go. 10 years, 100%. I don't know if my body could physically... <laughs> Take it. Right. Janine Ellis has been working. I hate that I know this. Janine Ellis <laughs> has been training with a Navy SEAL for the last few months to prepare her has for Survivor. She? Yes. Let's go back a bit, though. I read over the weekend when I was just reading a lot about you, which makes me feel like the biggest stalker. We and are you the too. biggest stalkers. It's and I read that you have come from a whole family of entrepreneurs. Is that right? I think that they would have never considered themselves entrepreneurs. But in hindsight, I think I did a lot of thinking about privilege a couple of years ago and about the head start that I had that potentially you know not everyone has had and a big part of that was that on my father's side of the family everyone was small business owners you know Greek immigrants Irish immigrants they just they came with nothing and they built something on their own terms Mm. and you know sometimes it was a milk bar and sometimes it was you know a building company but it was always people you know, family members and often the women in my family, which I think is unusual, who went, right, I'm going to start something from scratch. I'm going to start a business. So it always felt very normal to me and almost expected. And I think that's an incredible advantage that I had because as I get older, I realize a lot of people, there's a a real fear around the uncertainty of it and the risk of it. Whereas I just kind of felt like, oh, it's just something that you do. You start things and try and make money from them. So it's almost like that sense of initiative was hereditary, like everyone in your family had it. I think it was just considered normal. I think if, you know, if I'd come from a family background where everybody worked for other people, then there would have been a lot more fear about that. I also, you know, was lucky enough that my parents said, great, you want to start in Vato? Fine, you can live in our basement and work from our garage and we will feed you while you start doing this. And if it all falls apart, 
you can continue living in our basement until you get back on your feet. It's an interesting look at privilege, I guess, that we don't tend to talk about. I feel like all of our conversations around privilege these days is like from an incredible economic sense. Like, did you come from money? And that's like privilege Mm. in and of itself. But it's like a different conversation in its entirety in terms of talking about the nurture that you grow up in that lets you do what you are doing now. Yes, level of education, the sort of, you know, the it's it's interesting. We were sort of uh, a few years ago, you know, we were at Envato um, talking about diversity and inclusion a, a lot. And one of the things I was thinking about was how to be, how to apply that context. You know, we were, we were working hard on thinking about it from the context of women, but how would one do it um, if one were considering it from the point of view of Indigenous Australians? So how to be, you know, within tech, how to be diverse and inclusive from the point of view of Indigenous Australians. And again, my knowledge of this is, you know, despite a fair bit of research, really nascent compared to sort of, you know, uh, anybody who's an expert in this area. But a lot of the context I kept on getting was oftentimes, you know, if you've got people who they are the first person in their family who has gone to university or the first person in their family who is going to go work in a workplace for the first time. There is an incredible amount of context that we just pick up from the fact that our parents had jobs Mm. and would talk about what their day at work was like and, you know, that that just isn't available for everyone. Yeah. And um, and so I guess, you know, it does, it, it always makes me conscious of the advantage that I had in terms of, how my parents and my family were and how they interacted in the world that allowed me to start businesses, be successful at work. It's not, it's not all about something that I did. Can you talk us through when you actually started Invato? You were 26 mm-hmm. and you had worked in graphic design previously, is that yes. correct? And you begin it with your husband. Mm-hmm. What made you think there's a gap in the market? What made you think this is going to work? I've always just taken the tack of I'm just going to start fiddling around with things and see what happens. Collis and I had both been freelancing for some time, I as a graphic designer, him as a web designer, and I'd only had one job. Well, I worked in a chicken shop in high school. And um, and <laughs> then, counts. Yeah. Count it. And then, um, and then, you know, after university, I got a job at a great graphic design agency and I lasted three months and then I quit. Didn't really know what I wanted to do. Started a little jewellery. I'm, I'm really like business <laughs> is a very generous way to turn it. <laughs> Decided I was going to try and make jewellery and, you know, sell it at the local markets and sell it to shops and stuff like that. Really total failure. But again, every time you do these things you learn and then meanwhile I was picking up more and more freelance graphic design work until eventually you know Collis was getting freelance web design work we thought let's you know smoosh this together a lot of the clients need both and go from there while we were doing that we kept finding that you know we'd take photos and we'd go look let's just put them online and sell them but there were a lot of things that we were making for our clients that we thought you know like graphics themes and you know flash templates and um, and other things like that, that we thought, oh, be actually other designers could use this. Other designers could use this for their clients and they wouldn't need to build it from scratch. But there was really nothing at scale that was filling that need. There was really only photography. The only kind of stock that you could get, or micro stock as it was called, was photographs. And we thought, well, if we find this useful then why don't we just try and build something and, you know, sell the stuff that we're making and go from there. It's such a powerful tool, I feel like, in our own business. We generally use the rule that if we would use it and if we would find it helpful or if we would 
it would enrich our lives, it'll probably work. Mm. I think if if it's a concept that excites you and you think, boy, that would be great, you know exactly what you're saying. I think, you know, even if the best that happens is that you solve your own problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> great. What a win. And, you, you know, like as long as you don't bet the farm, I think it's really useful and fun to try and make things. How long did it take for you to say this thing's working and this is going to work for a really long time? Like this thing's really taken off. So we worked on it for about five months straight, got into a lot of debt. And so it. I don't know whether if we hadn't have been scrambling so much, if it would have been as successful as it was because we were in the level of debt we were in, which in hindsight wasn't a huge amount, but for us at the time was a lot. Um, so we were about $50,000 in the hole when you kind of counted everything. That was huge, huge, huge. Not, not huge money for a lot of people starting established businesses, but for us, huge money at the time. So we, we knew we needed to work. We knew we just needed to. It was the only thing we could do to try and make it back. And I think it for the first year at least we didn't take a salary at all we just pumped everything back in and tried to make it break even and then after about two years we were able to take a proper salary even then not a big salary at all about equivalent to what I was earning as a junior designer but yeah so I think at that point it did started start to grow and by about 2009 we suddenly thought oh wow this thing's this thing's really growing and it started to feel like it was the best analogy I can come up with, it's like you're on a roller coaster and you're not strapped in and you're just trying to hold on, <laughs> trying to hold on and figure out how to do all the things you need to do. I don't know where to end that so that the, <laughs> so the roller coaster doesn't crash. I don't know. It makes perfect sense. I think when people see really successful businesses that are growing at an exponential rate, I think everybody assumes everybody else knows what they're doing because they've had the idea to start with. But there's this real sense that if you have the idea, that's kind of all you have in that moment. You don't have much else around it. I can say categorically, I've never known what I'm doing. <laughs> Still don't. I just need to grab that yeah. as a clip and just play it on loop. That can be the entrance, the intro. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I am curious. You just said that you're in quite a bit of debt and $50,000 yes. to the average Australian would be a ton of debt, as yes. you said. How has your relationship with money changed? Because I'm sure you see headlines about yourself mm-hmm. where that's, there's a huge dollar sign next to your name or your company's name. What is your relationship with money like now, now that you're making young rich lists mm-hmm. and seeing that huge number? It's quite surreal. Like I think that um, for me seeing the number of people that work at Invato is a real kind of, you know, there's, there's about 600 people now between, you know, all over the world. And that to me is quite surreal because that's a way that I can visually represent what Envato has become. In terms of the number that is applied to my net worth in relation to Envato, that to me is completely arbitrary because literally it's the AFR going, we've done some calculations <laughs> and we're not telling you what the calculations are. It's like and a we mystery think formula. Envato is worth X amount and therefore your share of Envato is worth Y amount. And like it it just it's not something that feels in any way real mm. so i think you know I, I i kind of need to put it to one side cuz otherwise it's just it's just too strange mm. and and it's not like it's not like it's yeah it it's just not really real invato's real and i hope you know invato does very well but it's the the rest of it's just a number that 
It's like makes white noise. drop off really weird. Do you feel naked when you see that those headlines? Because they are out there. When we Googled your name, a lot of the headlines put your worth or your estimated worth next to your name. Does that feel odd? I found it really challenging in the past and I've come to realise that it is a very convenient metric of social proof for journalists to be able to say this is why you should be reading this article Mm -hmm. and that's okay and you know I I think my job is just to go okay I'm taking that with a massive grain of salt and you know it just it just is what it is it's it's a really it's a soundbite that that as I say gives people and the press in particular a metric by which to judge whether I'm worth having in that article or not yeah of course you have a company then that employs 600 people across Mm -hmm. the world it's going incredibly well you have two children, you're very busy. Why then go and say, you know what? I'm just going to start another company. It's going to be in chocolate and it's called Hey Tiger. <laughs> because I'm a crazy person. <laughs> um, no, look, I think that um, I've been doing Envato for quite some time and it was one of those things where I'm really glad that I learnt how to do the things that Envato requires at the scale that it is at. So at an organisation of Invato size, you need to have a broad understanding of international tax law and how that might apply to, you know, a company like Invato. Fun. Yeah, you need to be thinking about, you know, um, things about human resources and accounting and company structure and, you know, all sorts of things like that. And while I'm glad that I've been able to get context about that stuff and understand it and I can go, great, you know, tick that off the list it's not something that really resonates with me. So you get a lot of people who off the back of a company like Invato will go, great, I'm going to be on boards now. I'm going to go and be on a bunch of boards. I actually can't imagine anything worse than just being on boards because I like actually doing the stuff. And I think with Invato, one of the things that I found really interesting as it's grown is the concept of what good it can do within its community. So being a 100% flexible work environment, you know, um, trying to go, to do good stuff within diversity and inclusion. We have an Indigenous foundation. Um, trying to be a great place to work. Those are things that I think, all right, given that I believe that, you know, some of at least some of the success that I've had is around, you know, I know people say not to talk about luck, but honestly, luck and privilege, I believe that therefore I have the responsibility to try and do good stuff with that. If I'm the one person that won the life lottery that gets to be the person that, you know, is the majority shareholder in the 600-person company, what am I going to do to kind of to earn that, you know, that, that, that much overused quote to those much is given, much is expected. So I think business with impact to me is a really interesting concept. If you take that to its logical conclusion and you do start to think about, well, what if business is a force for good? then a social enterprise is the is the logical conclusion to that. And I knew I wanted to do a social enterprise and for whatever reason, when I was thinking about what it was that I wanted to do, I just kept on coming back to chocolate. I felt like there was a hole in the market and the more I learnt, the more I realised there were major issues in the industry which made it a really broken industry. And I think, you know, with a social enterprise, if you see a really big hole in the market... You can imagine something way better and really exciting 
and there's a really good reason for that industry to change, then, you know, you smush it all together and you give it a crack. Was the broken aspect of the industry that it was largely unethical? So I, you know, I mean, I've got a, I've got a five-year-old and an eight-year-old and the context that there are children that are my children's ages who are working on cocoa plantations, sometimes in slave labour um, in West Africa, and there's 2.2 million of them, to me felt really, really broken. And then I dive deeper and, you know, learning that the average cocoa farmer earns 73 cents per day. You know, you can't even, you know, one initially goes, oh, child labour, what are these cocoa farmers doing? Cocoa farmers are earning nothing and yet it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So it's one of those things that the people who are actually making the crop that leads to so much enjoyment for people, you know, women especially, you know, in my opinion, on our side of the world. And it has that dark, you know, that such a dark origin and such a dark impact for especially women and children felt to me like something that just just yucky. It just felt like the, the very essence of what we're trying to avoid in business. Coming up after the break, why Cyan wants to be a force for good, a force for change. But first, a word from today's sponsor. Zara, we are currently training for Connor's Run next month where we have to run 9.6 kilometres, the most I have ever run in my entire life. It has been quite the journey. Luckily, things have been very fun and very enjoyable with Keep It Cleaner's running program, which is developed by experienced running coaches to help you reach your goals, Michelle, whatever they may be. What I love is that the Keep It Cleaner running program is tailored for your own individual fitness levels, some of ours lower than others, Zara McDonald. There are 12-week programs to help you conquer 5 kilometres, then 10, and then 21 kilometres and beyond. I think we might quit at 10. I also really appreciate that the three sessions each week are varied and different because I think sometimes running can get a bit monotonous. So sometimes I click into the app and see an interval session, hill runs or even time trials. It helps keep it interesting and keeps my motivation levels up. Also, of course, I can keep track of my progress when I use the running tracker inside the Kick app. This is all, of course, on top of Kick's other incredible workout varieties, strength workouts, which are my personal favourites, HIIT workouts, Pilates, yoga, boxing. There is so much stuff to make sure that no two weeks are ever the same. What kind of workouts do you prefer? I really like the HIIT ones. Yes. I'm a High hit. intensity. I'm a HIIT kick girl. Ooh, nice. <laughs> all the acronyms. <laughs> I don't think that worked at all. So if you guys are looking to see what all the fuss is about, Shameless listeners can now get 50% off their first month by using the code SHAMELESS50 at checkout. Yep, that's SHAMELESS50 at the checkout for a massive 50% off your first month of Keep It Cleaner. Sign up today at keepitcleaner.com.au. Thank you so much to Keep It Cleaner for making this episode of Shameless possible. I feel like I'm going to beat you with this fun run. Yeah, maybe. Probably. (laughs) It's not not me winning. (laughs) All thanks to Steph and Laura. Has this side of you where you want to do better and, I guess, pursue causes of change, has that always been something within you when you're a child? Have you always been that way? Yes, Yes, I, I, it's, it's been, looking back, it's something that really resonated with me from a really early age. Um, I, um, I went to a, I, my, I couldn't, when I was really little, I couldn't, um, like in grade two, I still couldn't read at all, which you're supposed to be able to read by grade two. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and I was going to a public school in a composite class and my parents, even though they didn't have the money, I was an only child, they put me into a private school called Skeggs, um in Sydney. 
And within like three months, I'd learned to read. Um, but the thing that – and it was a really good education, a really, really good education. But the thing that I loved especially about that school and one of the real formative things was they had this minister. So it was an Anglican school, schools in Darlinghurst. So Darlinghurst in Sydney has got – especially back then had a really – major issues so it, it you know um a lot of uh heroin a lot of prostitution um on the way to school you'd often be walking over syringes and dirty condoms and you were like maybe a, you know a 17 year old waiting to be picked up from school and there'd be a girl like you know 50 meters down the road who was 15 who was you know waiting to be picked up for a whole other reason so it was you know it was a interesting area to go to a private school and um, Dr. Lawton was the um, – he was the minister both for the school and he was also the minister for the church, which was, you know, basically like 100 metres down the road. Mm. And his congregation was of a completely different demographic of, um, to the, to the you know, the, the composite of the school that I went to. And even though my parents were staunch atheists, I always did incredibly well in religious education because mm -hmm. he'd talk about world religions and he'd talk about the responsibility that we had by virtue of the fact that we were born to the parents we were born to and that we had access to the education that Skeks provided. And so he always talked about basically just being a good human and taking care of the other humans. And so I always did incredibly well in religious education because just that the context of that always really interested me from an early age. And when, you know, with um, with the graphic design agency, graphic and web design agency that Collis and I started, it was called Good Creative. And the whole idea was we would take on these larger corporate clients and the work that they did would pay for us to do work for charity clients. Mm -hmm. And we did that. So you've got this social enterprise brewing in your mind mm -hmm. and you want to do good with that. And then I read an interview that you did with the Sydney Morning Herald, which was an interesting quote that I actually wanted to read out to you. You said, I thought, I don't understand why there isn't a brand catered to women of my age and demographic who are really obsessive about chocolate. Mm -hmm. Generally, chocolate brands cater to an older generation or kids. Mm -hmm. I feel like the more conversations I have in the last sort of year or so, it feels like everybody's realising there's a gap in the market where women haven't been catered to. Do you mm. feel the same way in that women weren't catered to with chocolate, women aren't catered to with a lot of different brands and then people are starting to wise up about it? I can only give you my gut feeling on this because I haven't really thought about it a great deal, to be totally honest. I've only really thought about it in the context of chocolate. I think that definitely it's true that even brands that traditionally have catered to women have catered to only a very specific type of woman. It feels a bit surfacey sometimes. I think so. I well, think it feels so. like maybe from my perspective that the people catering to women, it's been a boardroom of men deciding what women want and therefore targeting a very specific kind of woman. And the more women running businesses catering towards women, it's like a broader idea of what the average woman looks like or mm -hmm. what women Once. want to spend their money on. I, I think so. I hope so. It feels like intuitively it feels like we're entering a period of change and it's very interesting and I think that you know before we launched Tay Tiger I was genuinely terrified because I thought this is so personal I just don't know if this is going to resonate with people or mm. if people are just going to go what was she smoking <laughs> because it was such a departure from anything that we were seeing so yeah I don't know if I've got a I, 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 
don't know if I've got a fabulous answer for that beyond just intuitively. Yeah, I feel like I feel like there's something to it, but I think you've probably thought about it a lot more than I have with all the <laughs> No, that's why I was asking that's you. I was trying to steal your wisdom. <laughs> but how important to you was the packaging and the branding around the brand itself? Because it's a huge core part of what Hey Tiger is. Yeah, so Emily Weiss, who founded Glossier, um, to paraphrase it, she said, I want to create a brand that people want to wear on their T-shirt. And that is really what I wanted to do with Hey Tiger. I wanted to create a brand that people were passionate about and I wanted us to be a social enterprise under the hood. So I wanted it to be like, you fall in love with this brand, you think this is awesome chocolate, the product's incredible, the brand's incredible, I'm really excited about this. Whoa, it's a social enterprise as well, that's cool. I feel like that, I feel like with all the sort of the the problems around capitalism at the moment like that to me is an interesting story and a, and a hopeful story and you know hey tiger's got heaps that i still want to do with it and it's really only very nascent in terms of its impact story but i think that's an interesting thing but i think that it in my mind it needed to stand on its own two feet as an incredible brand and be a social enterprise as well not I didn't want people to be buying it because it was a social enterprise. You're also the founder of Milkshake. Yes. Which is a new app. What is it about these different companies that you're founding and that you're having these ideas for? What is it in your head that says, this is the idea that I'm going to pursue? Is there a feeling that you get or is there a thread that connects the three that has told you this is an idea and it's going to work? No, I think, I mean, I think what, what, Never gets talked about is how many ideas that I've had which never made it out to this level. Um, so I will have heaps and heaps and heaps of different ideas and, you know, they'll be left on the, you know, left scrunched up on a piece of paper on the floor or I've fiddled around with them. You know, I've, I've started things for three months before and then gone, oh, it's not going to work, better close it down. So I think I've taken a real approach of... You know, if you're going to become an entrepreneur, there's going to be plenty of ideas and it's about kind of getting a sense of whether it's going to take, you know, starting to fiddle around, seeing whether it's going to take. Um, I think with Milkshake and with Hey Tiger, I genuinely felt really strongly there was a hole in the market and I could not figure out for the life of me why it hadn't been filled. Genuinely. Like those two things, those two kind of ideas, I just had a certainty in my gut of like, I just... I don't know, like it's a terrible explanation, but just a a certainty in my gut that if we got it right, particularly with both if we got the brand and the product right, as opposed to just the product, it was going to take that people would kind of fall in love with it because it was solving a very genuine kind of problem or need or desire. Is the second step to that then, if I don't make it now, someone else will? Yes, So I think that in both these cases, I was genuinely shocked that no one had done it. And I did think to myself, all right, it's only a matter of time. In 2016, I was reading over the weekend again that you contracted this really aggressive bacterial ulcer in your eyes. Yes. Right? Yes. And the doctor said to you that if you don't lie in complete darkness for like a month, you could lose the eye or you could lose your sight. Is that right? So what happened was I got a very aggressive bacterial ulcer on my cornea. That sounds horrific. It was horrific, yeah, from wearing contact lenses. Um, And it 
was it was moving very very quickly and they said to me look we're not sure if you're going to be able to keep your eye or not and it was really sweet Collis my husband had taken me to the hospital and and obviously you know they're telling me this terrible news that I might lose my eye and in my mind I'm thinking all right can I can I pull off like a sort of a you know one of those what do you call it a pirate look a pirate yeah can I can I pull that off and you know funny at all and it was incredibly painful and and it was very stressful because my vision was a little bit blurred and I was like oh geez Louise and Carlos was like, I'm just going to pop out and I'm going to get us a coffee. It's going to be fine, you know, um, sitting like in a hospital bed. And he comes back and he says, don't worry. I walked the whole way there and the whole way back with one eye closed and I could still manage oh! it. <laughs> that is so sweet. It was just such a pure moment. I think I'm going to remember it on my deathbed. Just how just the sweetest very, thing ever. Was, he's, he's a good egg, that husband of mine. It really sounds it, like it. It was very nice. But um, that gives you a bit of a sense of where our, where our heads were at in that moment. But I had to have, you need to have antibiotics in your eye every hour, 24 hours a day. So I was very, very, very sleep deprived. So, you know, you're not getting into REM sleep at all. You're sleeping a max of 45 minutes every hour for days and days and days on end. And it was, I don't understand why, but it was more painful in the light. So they said it's much better just to stay in the dark. So I went from going absolutely full pelt at work, you know, two little kids running in Vato, doing a lot of, you know, public speaking and just generally running around like a headless chicken to just nothing, just darkness. I couldn't work. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read. I just kind of lay there really sleep deprived. But I look back on it and it was a really, really good thing for me because I think that if I hadn't have had that happen, I don't know how long it would have taken for me to actually reflect and realise that what I was doing in Vato maybe wasn't the best use of my time or energy anymore. And I decided then that I wanted to start a social enterprise. So it was in that period where you really started to reflect on things that had been going on. Yes, and thinking about whether it was what I wanted or whether it was what was happening to like I think that's so common though that we run so quickly these days that until you actually are forced to stop or something happens that you're like am I actually in the right space you are kind of just so we talk so much about living in the moment which Mm -hmm. is great but if you aren't actually looking ahead how do we actually know we're doing the right thing or in the right spot I think we can get so busy and I think that you know I've now come to realize one of my theories or hypotheses maybe is that you're like when you have huge amounts of input it's very difficult to have output And I think it's so easy to go, all right, well, you know, I'm waking up in the morning and I'm immediately trying to do these 20 things. I'm checking my Instagram. I'm checking my Twitter, whatever it might be. I'm going to listen to this audio book because I've been told it's a great thing to listen to. I'm going to get to work. (laughs) I'm going to do that. And we're constantly, like, every second of the day there's input. And I think your mind needs to have time to be still in order for there to be interesting output. So I think that... That period of time was a good lesson for me and I do now and I'm still not very good at it, I'll be totally honest, try and find time where I can be still and just be present because when I do, I actually do better work. I do more useful, effective work. I imagine having that time away from work is difficult as well when your husband and your significant other is in the same workplace. How do you guys navigate that in your relationship and at home? Is that tricky? to have so much of your work brought home with you both? I think that Collis and I, our 
one of the real foundations of our marriage is the fact that we're both really passionate about what we do. So, you know, we just went away overnight, like two nights ago, only the third time we've ever spent the night together without our children in like um, since we had children, which was eight years ago. Um, so it was very pleasant. But we talked about work a lot, but not the day-to-day operational stuff, but the why stuff. And I think it's it works really well for us. I think also I really like being in his pocket and I think he really likes being in mine, which I don't think is true for every couple. You know, I was about to say it wouldn't work for a lot of couples, I reckon, but somehow you <laughs> guys must couples. have this chemistry and this dynamic where it does work. I think it's just the type of people that we are. So, you know, uh, we both had relationships prior where we got together very young, but we both had relationships prior where the other person said to us, you know, can you just give me a little bit of space? And then we got together and we were as clingy as one another. (laughs) And, you know, after we launched Invato and it was kind of going on a steady kill, we actually travelled around for about 18 months while we worked. And, you know, we went to Hong Kong for three months and just rented a little apartment and we came back and we saw some friends and they said, oh, how often were you guys apart while you are in Hong Kong? And we realised that we'd been apart for three hours when I went to get my hair done in three months. Wow. But we 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 like it. It's just unusual in that way. But it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone, but I love the sound of it. Like, I <laughs> love the sound. amazing. We have um, had a lot of conversations on this podcast before in interviews about imposter syndrome and the mm-hmm. role that it's played in different people's careers. How has that played a role in your career? Has it come up for you? Oh, massively, massively. So particularly when Invato was growing very quickly in the early days and, you know, you're in your 20s, never managed anyone in your life, not particularly confident, feel a bit like, oh, do I have a right to be here? Yeah, I started this thing, but there's all these people coming in who've had, you know, who've worked in this space for longer than I have and, you know, on paper more senior than I am and I'm supposed to be managing them. How does that work? So I struggled with that for quite some time and, you know, I speak to... You know, I can't say whether more women experience it than men because I tend to speak to women more than men in a sort of when it comes to these sorts of conversations. But definitely with women that I know and women entrepreneurs that I know, it seems to be really common, like just across the board, it seems to come up. For me, the thing which really shifted the dial was being really clear on where my weaknesses were. So I think that I I felt like... The whole topic was so scary and I was so afraid that I wasn't capable and that I actually was no good that I wouldn't look in that direction at all and and just kind of was trying to trying to fake it the whole time. And it was only when I had a really good look and asked those around me where I was weak and where I was strong and really internalised where I was weak because you can adjust for your weaknesses. You can, you know, find mentors, you can find people that you work with, you know, um, and lean on them. But you've got to be really clear on your strengths. I found that once I was really clear where my strengths were and what value I added and where my weaknesses were, that was incredibly helpful Um, because it allowed me to kind of get free of this concept that somehow I needed to know everything, that I needed to have it all figured out, that I needed to be really strong in every area. I had totally unrealistic expectations of of what it was I was supposed to be able to sort of... um, know and be and do as a human lots of people would look to you as the epitome of success I know that will make you cringe a little bit (laughs) but they would 
what is it about hitting that level of success and achieving what you have achieved? What would people not see? What would be the things that would surprise them about being in your position right now? Is it that you maybe don't have the work-life balance that everyone holds up as the ideal or is it that Mm. your life does look different to what people might see? I don't have much of a social life. So I think that, you know, I made the decision that what's important to me in my life is spending enough time with my children so that they never feel like, oh, yeah, mum had this great career but she was never around and that I'm really effective in my work life because I believe that I'm, you know, my, my desire is to sort of to make things better in, in, in this way. I find that really interesting and I find that useful and important. Um, that means oftentimes... I don't go out at all. <laughs> like, you know, I, I'm not going to events, you know. I, I now get invited to a fair few events. I don't go, really, to things. I'm either working and I work with incredible people that I really enjoy the company of. I have, you know, some a few very, very close friends who I love dearly but don't see as much as I'd like to. And I spend time with my family. And it, 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 I just made a decision that that was what was important to me because you just you can't really have everything. I think the other thing that I'd say is that it's actually incredibly tiring. So it is not easy. It is not elegant. It doesn't look it. If you, it, there's this idea that somehow it's this effortless life, and it is very, very difficult. There's a reason why you know there's that man in the arena quote which is about you know basically being the person who's in fighting in the arena even though you might fall down and get punched in the face because that's better than being the person in the stands who's commenting and I think one of the reasons why that that quote really resonates with me is because it's bloody hard it's not easy and and you it's incredible highs and lows and I get very 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 tired so again that's okay that's what I've chosen to do and I you know I get a chance to test myself but it's hard it's not easy you said earlier in the interview that you felt like a lot of this had come down to luck and that you had I'm paraphrasing you back to you about half an hour later (laughs) that you felt like you had won the life lottery do you really believe that 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 a lot of this is a lottery that a lot of it has come down to luck that you've sort of just landed here I believe that there are a huge number of people who work just as hard as I did or harder to start something which had just as much potential but the market wasn't with them. The market wasn't with them, something went wrong. I've seen it happen time and time again where you you know meet these founders and you go, my goodness, you're incredibly talented, you're sharp as a tack, you know, the idea is really solid and a big competitor comes to get them or the technology around that they, you know, that they deal with changes or... You know, just something goes really wrong. And it is an incredible risk. It's an incredible gamble starting a business. Um, and so while I believe that I've worked very hard and I believe that I deserve to be here, I also cannot cannot avoid being conscious of and acknowledging that 
there were a huge amount of things that have gone my way from the education that I received to the parents that I had to the fact that we just had no competitors coming after us to the fact that, you know, we happened to stumble upon our first developer who said you should build that in Ruby on Rails, which is the programming language we used. Just such a huge number of things went our way. And I think when you're going to consider, and I know I keep harping on about privilege, but when you're going to consider privilege deeply, you've got to have a really balanced view around what has allowed you to get where you are because if we don't do that we'll continue to live in a society where people like me won't consider what they have to give back because I think that concept and it's a you know it's very common in America of you know I've worked really hard and therefore I get to behave however I want I I just don't think that we're going to survive I don't think humanity is going to survive and if we continue to, people like me continue to behave that way. And that is why I talk and think a lot about privilege because I'm aware that I have an awesome responsibility compared to most other humans. What does success look like to you? You've achieved a lot, but looking back on your life so far, what are the successes and what makes you feel the most fulfilled? Hey Tiger really, really has made me incredibly happy. Something kind of experiential that I get to hand to people and they get excited and they get to like, I think food is like art except you get to experience it with all your senses. And so with Hey Tiger, I think I got to pair a lot of things that I'm passionate about. I wanted to be a chef when I was a little kid. So, you know, um, food that is incredibly enjoyable and experiential for people, something that's visually really beautiful. Um, uh, And the fact that people find it, interesting and hopefully in a small way it creates some sort of hope I love the concept that a business can exist to kind of to benefit its community as opposed to benefiting shareholders that to me I think is a really interesting concept so the fact that no matter how Hey Tiger goes in the future right like the fact that I gave that a really good crack and some people have been really passionate ex- and excited about it. Including the two people right here interviewing <laughs> you. <know>, staring <laughs> at it right in front yeah, of me. They've been very supportive, which we're very grateful for. That, to me, gives me a huge amount of pleasure and happiness. Cyan, thank you so much for your time. I know you're incredibly busy, so to give us your time is amazing. And we speak a lot about privilege, but we are incredibly privileged to have actually sat down and spoken to you and listened to everything that you have to say because you have such a wealth of wisdom that I've just been soaking in, have you? Yeah, thank you so much. We so appreciate it. Thank you both so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Cyan Taeed. If you loved Cyan as much as we did, please do follow her on Instagram. She's at Cyan C. Taid. We are also on Instagram. You will find us, of course, at Shameless Podcast. We will be back in your ears on Monday. Bye, guys.